And welcome to the FDF podcast. I'm Sabina, Senior Sustainability Executive here at the Food and Drink Federation. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Helen Dodd, Head of Reinventing Responsibility, and Sophie Wheel, Associate Director of Public Policy and Instinctive Partners. Instinctive Partners are a strategic communications consultancy operating across Europe, the Middle East and Africa that specializes in reputation, influence and impact. Sophie and Helen both have a particular expertise in and passion for the food and drink sector. Um, I thought we could start with some introductions. So maybe Helen, would you like to go first and tell us a bit about yourself and your background? Hi, I'm Helen. I head up the Reinventing Responsibility Practice at Instinctive Partners, um, which is our ESG advisory service. I joined Instinctive from Unilever, where I spent the past seven years in sustainable business and communications, working across global and local briefs. Um, prior to that, I was consulting um, and I worked in a nutrition NGO, so I've got a particular expertise um, and passion for food and drink, so it's great to be here today. Hi everyone, my name is Sophie Wheel, as been said, Associate Director in the Public Policy Team. Um, at the moment at Instinctive, I lead on quite a lot of our food, uh, food clients, especially the central government engagement, how we navigate post-Brexit, cutting through that red tape. And prior to joining Instinctive, I was a senior civil servant, so I've done my round several government departments. Uh, most recently, work on the Brexit bill and leading on the negotiations, but prior to that with the Foreign Office serving out in Afghanistan and Tunisia. And so, yeah, absolutely delighted to be here today. So in today's episode, we'll be talking about one of the projects uh, that Instinctive Partners have undertaken, a study aimed to build an understanding of consumers' attitudes towards climate change. And the study report titled Mind the Green Gap, an interesting play with was, is a practical and tangible guide to help companies close the gap between intention and much-needed action on climate change. But before we jump into the insights the study gives us, I feel it is crucial to understand the backdrop to this research from corporate, political and consumer perspective, as this is something that will definitely has its influence and impact on the results. So we've conducted this research over the past three years, um, and so each of those years has really brought its own specific challenges. I think um, particularly in 2021, we were facing a particularly challenging time for food and drink, um, both in the UK, but also globally. Obviously, we had dramatic change in trading relationship um, between the UK and Europe. We had a global pandemic. Um, and then, of course, at the start of 2022, a war in Europe. Um, and this was really on top of, um, you know, some of those really big challenges that we've seen from a changing climate, which has impacted food supply chains. So for food and drink, really challenging um, backdrop, um, the challenge of sort of keeping food um, just on our shelves at all, um, let alone at an affordable price um, and, uh, you know, in a, in a with, with sustainability at its core, um, has obviously been a very big challenge, both for governments and, and industry. But at the same time, we've also seen really big shifts in sort of the consumer, regulatory and investor expectations when it comes to the sustainability landscape. Um, You know, that those audiences um, don't see sustainability as a nice to have or an add on. Um, There's a real commercial imperative for uh, for companies to prioritise sustainability um, in their operations, but also in the way that they communicate to their customers, um, as well as their other stakeholders like investors and regulators. So it's a really complex, really dynamic picture, um, but one in which there is big opportunities for the companies that get it right. So with this research, we we really wanted to understand what consumers thought um, about 
sort of climate change, cost of living, what their expectations were on companies, um, and then provide that really practical um, guidance for how companies can, can navigate that landscape. Yeah, just to add on to that, I think having information like this is a tool and an asset that we want to provide to our clients, but to every sort of food and drink company out there, just because over the last years in plural it's been really difficult for companies to navigate through that the amount of uh, delays in checks and processes if you're a a food company trying to shift products of animal origin for example the last few years have been really hard for you to gear up hire vets for example and then to have to not use them immediately because the government has delayed so what we're sort of at our focus point is to help provide that clarity and help the navigation and I think understanding what consumers are thinking for the businesses will help uh, arm um, industry to better engage with uh, government because it's been key to start building up those direct relationships with policy officials because they are there to also help you navigate where possible but you need to build up that personal relationship so part of this information gathering is just uh, adding a string to your bow as we sort of get through 2023, we look forward to to 2024 as we see sort of further crunch points with the food strategy, with um, target operating model, whatnot. Um, And so, yeah, that's why it's brilliant that we've got the information to hand. So yeah, it goes to show the the amount of work, time and effort that goes into the research and the results are uh, incredibly useful for businesses across all sectors, to be fair. And um, but let's focus on food and drink sector. What the research told us, what were the key findings? So what really came through from our research is that consumers expect to see governments taking real action to tackle climate change. So for UK citizens, it's their own governments that they think bears the most responsibility, followed by other governments with companies and brands close behind um, close behind that. But while consumers do see governments taking the role, they also want businesses to help them to make the most sustainable decisions. So 74% of people that responded said that they want a simple way to know how ethical a company is at a glance. So I think for food and drink particularly, um, all of the debates around sort of environmental labelling, animal welfare labelling, etc., are particularly pertinent um, for, for, for these findings. Um, and how can we create a system that helps um, consumers to really just be able to pick up a packet and know how, how ethical a company is, um, you know, on a very, very simple level. Um, the challenge really, I think, is for our, particularly the food and drink, drink, drink sector, but other sectors as well, is bringing together that desire to know on a very simple level how sustainable a company is, whilst being very careful to be as honest, accurate and transparent as possible. I think this is really important because consumers are very, very attuned to greenwashing. Um, Only 29% of consumers that responded to us said that they trust the actions that companies say they're taking to tackle climate change. Um, But also from a regulatory perspective, um, we're seeing a lot more action from bodies such as the Advertising Standards Association, the Competition and Markets Authority that are looking really carefully at green claims and taking action um, where they've seen what they they would refer to as greenwashing and advertising and marketing. Um, So we've seen some really high profile examples of this, some of them involving the food and drink sector. Um, for example, where regulators um, have said that advertising and marketing claims aren't clear enough or have been misleading consumers. So it's really about trying to understand where that balance is between giving consumers enough information to make the most sustainable choices, doing that in a way that um, makes sure that you are being honest, authentic and accurate about your claims and that you've got the data 
um, and the, the, the policies to back up what you're saying? We understand that there is an expectation on companies to take action on sustainability from running their operations more sustainably to making more sustainable products and kind of communicating that in a clear way. Um, and consumer uh, growing awareness means that they're more likely to avoid companies that uh, have a bad reputation on sustainability and in fact the customers uh, consumers now dictate the new norms and increasingly increasingly expect um, sustainable and ethical products as a standard so the awareness has increased but that does not necessarily mean the real action uh, what were the main barriers that prevented people from taking that real action that kind of showed uh, in your research? You mentioned the information overload, but what were the other barriers that kind of came through? Yeah, so there were four key barriers that our research identified. Um, they were cost, information overload, lack of trust, and a feeling of pessimism um, about the climate challenge. Um, so, and I think. In our research, what we tried to show then is that there are things that companies can do to overcome these. Um, so, you know, helping to provide consumers with a way that they can evaluate their behaviour, such as a visualisation of the environmental impact of using the product, um, which can help to lead to greater behavioural change when people really understand the impact of their actions. Helping to overcome pessimism um, by bringing that more positive vision of the future to life um, and helping to counteract some of those feelings of climate doomerism that we're seeing. Um, but I think above all, really to maintain trust um, with consumers, so really ensuring that you have robust, credible, up-to-date evidence on the life cycle of your product and um, to back up any sort of the sustainability claims that you're making. And just to build on that, we've been working with quite a few companies exploring uh, the life cycle um, analysis of your products, which I'll shorten to LCA going forward. And it's, it's, it is hard for companies to understand what is best practice because there's a lot of models, but really going and seeing how far you can get doing a cradle-to-grave assessment seems to be a really good way forward, where you don't just stop when your product gets to the retailer. Actually, you're trying to measure the impact of when the product goes into you know the consumer's bin. Essentially, that could be the packet because you've eaten all of it if it's a fresh product, or actually it goes back into the freezer if it's a frozen uh, product. But... People are now becoming more aware and are seeking out this information. So for companies as well, understanding you're having very clear labelling, but also sustainability reporting. I think in the past it was seen as something that a tick box exercise almost. Actually now, consumers want to be able to, to look it up on their phones afterwards and, and want to be able to take away some key pointers because now we're seeing that at least there is more ambition to take a bit of agency in how you shop. And for those who can you know, afford the price points will make that decision. There will also be further uh, challenges. We are in a cost of living um, crisis and that continues going into 2023. And therefore people have to navigate finding the balance. But the more transparent companies can be with their life cycle analysis on their products, going the full way, not just stopping at retailer, but into your consumer's bin once they've eaten their dinner, I think really captures from, as I say, cradle to grave, and that can really get you off to a good start. Um, and we're seeing, you know, the EU discuss around uh, life cycle analysis as well. And I know lots of um, industry and food groups have been trying to have this conversation with government to see if we can land on somewhere, you know, whether it's a traffic light system, this cradle to grave picture. So uh, anybody from a child to an adult, you can pick that product off to the shelf and understand where it's come from, its impact of getting from the retailer to also to getting you know, used up and into your hopefully recycling box. 
Yeah, I think that's, uh, as you mentioned, that um, that analysis is like the first step, really, the, the preparation that all businesses have to do on their products and services to be able to kind of communicate that further. But I can see that that might be very complex and very detailed information, how businesses can kind of streamline that information to the uh, to the consumers so it's kind of easily understood. And I came across a uh, phrase, uh, dinner table language. So it's simple language that can be kind of mm. communicated further and shared amongst consumer themselves as well to kind of uh, provide that further information. So how businesses can kind of uh, streamline that uh, all that information that they're gathering. Absolutely. I think with that, it comes down to messaging and you want to streamline it, make it user friendly as well. We want, when we're purchasing, we want it to be a quick, simple thing. We want to be validated in our decisions quickly. Again, that information come across clearly. So I think it comes down to how we're advertising. And this is where the ASA will have some guidance. But also, can we set some, and this is for industry to, to work with, you know, companies like Instinctive, to work with ourselves, to agree some best practice principles as well. We're all out there to show showcase our products in the best light, but also uh, to keep the competition there, because again, a competition creates a, a healthy environment. But I think it is a simplification on messaging. We go, we push for best standard, we keep striving for that. You get feedback from consumers as well. This is why uh, surveys and um, you know reports like our Mind the Green Gap report are fantastic because you get that feedback. And I think it won't be an overnight uh, solving because we've got lots of different organizations that don't just uh, you know sell in the UK. We've, we're very proud of the fact a lot of things created in the UK will actually be sold similar to the packaging we get you know, in our supermarkets at Tesco globally. So we need to also think about international audiences. But I think it's, it's getting that feedback, that simplification language, making sure it's user-friendly and setting some industry best practices and working with government will be the final point you have the government department of DEFRA, you have an ASA as a government body linked up to it. These people are here to help as well, lead best practice. The UK is extremely proud of its fantastic food heritage it's seen. It's already really pushing the boundaries and actually being best practice across sort of mainland Europe would be fantastic and we can help become, well, grow a reputation as world leaders in the food space. Yeah, as you mentioned, uh, that regulatory landscape, I think uh, businesses are kind of in the middle between the consumers and their expectations, but also managing all the uh, regulatory responsibilities. So how can businesses kind of navigate that landscape and prepare themselves for their reporting and all the scrutiny that comes uh, on the political side of things? For me, it starts with engagement. I think you, for, for businesses, you can sort of your your suiting up will be gather as much information as possible. There are regular briefings that government departments are doing, get in contact with the stakeholder engagement leads. So you have as much access uh, to what is happening across 2023 because it will be a moving picture. That's the the first of the context is is difficult to navigate because it is constantly moving. Um, you know, we've seen different white paper policies almost be cancelled from last year. We're still waiting to see how this uh, the large food strategy that came out last year also will actually develop in practice. You know, people are saying lots of question marks over where did the obesity strategy go? So it's really hard for government, no, sorry, for industry to start navigating to put into those uh, practices. But I would say begin with the engagement. And that's where, again, where organisations like Instinctive, we are here to help. We, and that's, I obviously speak as a former civil servant, I know how the government works. So it's building up those trusted relationships 
present yourself as a working partner as well share your information your feedback as industry how it works in the real world to those who are writing policy because that helps make policy development more resistant something that we're doing constantly with the organization we work with to help government reshape the target operating model that's in its draft process at the moment by feeding back and creating those feedback loops and then in terms of reporting, I might pass it to Helen. Yeah, too. I think in terms of the regulatory landscape, um, I mean, it is such a fast-moving landscape and it you know, it can feel very daunting to try and keep on top of it. Um, I think there's probably a couple of areas, you know, that I would say that companies should really focus on and watch out for. Um, reporting requirements, as you mentioned, Sabina. So um, we already have TCFD for larger enlisted companies in the UK. Um, in 2023, we're going to be seeing a number of new frameworks coming into effect, such as ISSB and TNFD, and we think these will probably become mandatory for some companies in the coming years. So if you, you know, if you are a company that, um, you know, will fall under those mandatory rules, you know, make sure that you are aware of those frameworks and that you are doing the, the groundwork to be able to um, start reporting on those in time. Um, but also green claims, I think, you know, in 2023, we really know that regulators are honing in on sustainability claims, and that's not just at the UK level, we're also seeing this happening in the, e, at the EU and in the US as well. Um, so really help, you know, making sure that you're compliant with the green claims code. Um, if you're working in communications, you know, make sure that you're able to support your marketing colleagues when it comes to green claims and that you're not falling foul of any, um, of any investigations. So there is a, a green claims code website, which helps to provide all of that guidance and a checklist and even a quiz to test your knowledge. Uh, but I think above all, you know, when it comes to, um, to both to regulation and to green claims, it's making sure that, you know, you really have that robust approach to sustainability so that you are doing that life cycle analysis, that you have a very robust, um, uh, you know, sort of strategy, that you have robust proof points, that you're measuring the right data, etc. Um, so that, you know, you are able to, um, to, to communicate with with transparency and with authenticity, which I think at the end of the day is what consumers are looking for and also what regulators are looking for. Yeah, that's a great advice, Helen and uh, Sophie. It's uh, lots of helpful advice for, for our listeners. Um, we mentioned the importance on, of reputation and that consumers are less likely to, to consider buying from unethical companies. And um, maybe you could expand on um, ESG focus in business strategy, so the environmental, social and uh, governance um, in the decision-making process. So what are the risks of, let's say, not uh, factor that in? And then on the flip side, what are the opportunities there if you do the strategy right and you factor all that elements in? Yeah, so it's interesting because the research does show that there is a bit of a generational divide when it comes to whether consumers will you know, avoid buying um, from companies that have a bad reputation on sustainability. So younger consumers, for example, are much more likely to avoid buying um, from companies that they see as, um, you know, as, as unsustainable or unethical. Um, but on the flip side, actually, those same consumers say that they are actually less likely to want to pay more for sustainability. So it feels like generationally, you know, the, the, this is the generation that will sort of set those norms and, you know, companies will have to keep up with that rising expectation. Um, but also that, you know, companies will then have to grapple with whether or not they're able to charge a premium for sustainability, for example, um, and how that they can, how they're able to sort of market that, that, that sustainability, you know, those sustainability claims um, and the efforts that they're making in those space. So I think it's, um, you know, companies, you know, that will be doing consumer research will be very aware of sort of what their consumer, you know, consumers are sort of thinking and feeling about them, um, but making sure that you're also equipped for sort of the next generation and what their, what their expectations 
expectations and, um, and, and standards will be and how they will push those those different norms. Um, you know, and you know, you'll have challenger brands that are coming through and are able to quite quickly adapt um, to those, um, those, those those changing expectations. I mean, we've seen obviously with sort of the rise of plant-based eating, for example, um, you know, that's still, you know, despite the cost of living crisis, um, you know, we are still seeing more consumers turning to plant-based, for example. Um, so, you know, where can, where can companies, um, you know, meet those, meet, meet those consumer expectations? Just to build on the plant-based uh, space, because it's really interesting how this is emerging in the UK. And, uh, you know, how I talked about the UK being quite proud of its food history actually this is a really pioneering space lots of research and development going in but again in in the survey we found that over half um, of those surveyed um, are going to now try avoid eating uh, animal products including your dairy and meat whereas uh, 2021 this is around 35 percent now I've personally been working quite uh, strongly with the plant-based uh, industry just to see how we can better engage with government to create uh, to create that opportunities for for growth and building on Helen's point, we're seeing these disruptors companies, sort of your Oatly, but also Levy that's coming from France, come in and challenge and change the industry in really innovative ways because uh, we're seeing consumers want to um, want to support them uh, with their their purse strings in in a way, but. Um, also, it's there's a building and momentum in this um, absolute space. And it's very interesting one because also the plant-based industry, there is there is room to also work with um, meat and dairy in this space to to be part of the picture. But for government going forward, this should be taken quite seriously. And almost how net zero should be the horizontal across most government policy. You want to see it in the education policy. You want to see it in housing policy. Actually, for plant-based food and drink, given that it's growing more and more, that should be part of a net zero policy. So it should be available probably in schools and part of the education as, as well, because it's a really brilliant opportunity. And actually, just on my uh, travel in here, I was seeing a, a really interesting campaign from a company called Gen V. And they've got a current campaign out challenging the prime minister to turn vegan for one month and they will give a million pounds to charity so you can feel the momentum and that's a new ad out um, i believe and so yes in terms of trends going into next year and these disruptors um the the landscape is changing but also the it's something we want to celebrate because there's a lot of um innovation in the space in how we are making it but also it, it attracts from sort of an important export point of view and the UK creating this fantastic international portfolio, we're attracting really good companies to come and manufacture here to target our audiences um, and British consumers. So um, it's a really exciting time to be in that in that sort of line of business, but also it's exciting for consumers. So I think in the past, you know, possibly trying more vegan-based or vegetarian-based uh, food, it didn't necessarily compare with your meat-based or dairy-based products, which are really exciting, really tasty. But actually now, the the innovation is there, the, the taste buds are tingling. So now it's um, a really good time to be trying those products, but for those companies to be also be taken as seriously as some of the other giants. So, um, yeah, so uh, in my own learning, I came across a phenomenon labelled as Green Hush, where businesses became increasingly uh, wary of communicating the, uh, their sustainability efforts unless they have very strong evidence in fear of being accused of greenwashing. So, um, have you came across uh, this in your work? It's certainly something that companies are mindful of, um, and I think, you know, 
often we're asked to really help our clients to sort of navigate all of those different expectations. So as you mentioned, on, on the one hand, the expectation um, from consumers wanting to know how ethical their companies are. Um, on the other hand, companies not wanting to fall foul of, um, of, of, of regulation or to say the wrong thing or be, or be called out. Um, I think what I would say is, you know, for food and drink companies, there is a really big opportunity um, for them, you know, for, for, for the ones that can sort of get it right in this space. So when you actually look at, um, you know, how crucial food and drink is in tackling climate change, um, there's around 61 actions that the IPCC has said can be really material um, in saving carbon. 17 of those actually relate to food production and consumption. Um, so eating more plants and wasting less food, for example, are given sort of whole sections by the IPCC in terms of kind of the impact that they can have on, on, on carbon saving. So I think for food and drink companies, really, it's about narrowing down where they can have the biggest impact, you know, not trying to communicate on everything um, and trying to sort of, you know, help their consumers as well to have the most impact. Um, one of the other things that we found in our research actually is that consumers are more likely um, to prioritise actions that actually have less impact on the climate um, and deprioritise actions that are more disruptive to their lifestyle but actually have a, have a bigger impact. So it's really trying to marry up kind of what is your business model, where can you make the most impact um, and how can you then sort of help your consumers to also have that, that same impact as well. So I think companies that are worrying about this from a communications perspective and um, you know there's plenty that you can do to make sure that you're not um, you know that, sorry that make sure that you are compliant with regulation um, and it's really just about being you know very clear about what it is that you're trying to achieve being very clear about your proof of setting to um, so you know it's not an either or um, but of course there probably are some issues that are more resonant within the cost of living crisis like food waste for example um, where you know there can be a real win-win from reducing food waste and helping consumers to reduce food waste both from a cost and from a planet perspective. Definitely. Well, thank you for all your insights um, and, uh, and the advice that you've shared with uh, our listeners that is uh, incredibly useful. Uh, I'm certain of it. Uh, but before I let you go, um, I'd like to ask, uh, what's what's next? What's on the on the horizon in 2023? For as I you know was saying with the the plant based space, I personally still think this is going to keep on growing. I mean, we are recording this in January, in January, so it probably feels very sort of front and center of mind at the moment. Um, but also the the labeling, I think that's got a really important uh, space to play as government tries to figure out pursuing possibly one position and one type of label does that match with the eu labeling um but also how we get that right for for the consumer so i think uh, going forward in that i would i would sort of say yeah seeing the plant-based space um emerge get stronger but also as people look for their towards their dairy and their meat products um and and seeing possibly more local um, in terms of where they're from in the UK, we've got fantastic meat and dairy heritage. And again, if people are able to track the source, we see it now emerging. I mean, with chocolate, how often now are you seeing bean to bar and people sort of pursuing uh, those and, and just really wanting to understand where the source is. And I think that will show where, you know, where the milk is coming from, the animal welfare going forward. I know government is is looking into that. It's a complicated thing to also start labelling around that. But the conversations have started, which is really good, because also it's, it's an opportunity for companies to where you are doing well, well animal welfare 
space. Consumers will love to know that. They're getting excited by brands. Um, and so the more transparent we see, you see it going back to the chocolate example, you know, Tony's Chocoloni is a really good example of where they have been very transparent across all the packaging map who they are, their ethos, what they're trying to do, they're trying to change the nature of the, the, the chocolate world um, in, in that sense. So those would probably be my sort of key ones, the labelling, the, uh, the veganism and the vegetarian sort of push in the plant-based space, but um, also, yeah, the attention detail of like the source of where we're getting everything from. Yeah, that's great. And any other upcoming projects that you can share and events? Building on that, um, Instinctive Partners will be working with the Plant-Based Food Alliance in the coming weeks, organising an online workshop to look through uh, the future of innovation within the plant-based industry. This is based off what we ran in December. We had about 60 industry members, darling, which was fantastic, to discuss plant-based economics uh, in that trying to understand how how much it's, it's you know, providing for the economy of the UK and actually it contributes a lot, especially in terms of the products we want to export. Um, it's, it's, it's rising through those um, through the figures. Now we want to look at innovation in uh, research and development, how government can better support that, but also innovation in farming as well to work with farmers um, and, and help, you know, transition where possible and if it's necessary to, uh, to growing other sort of crops rather than um, our traditional ways of farming and just seeing if there's a conversation there um, we'll be announcing the date in the coming weeks but um, we'll be able to share with FDF members who want to dial in obviously free to attend and the, the final plant-based uh, uh, event will be a parliamentary event where we can use come meet uh, other industry members in your field whether you're plant-based or not the conversations for everybody it's really important that we really share this dialogue uh, the plant-based uh, industry wants to you know be in conversation with and work better with me and, and dairy industries it's not one for the other at all for the UK it's really important we we promote both we push for best quality best standards in both um, so that's from me yeah and I think um, you know for us it's really um, continuing to help our clients to sort of navigate through um, you know the really dynamic fast-changing landscape so um, you know I think unfortunately cost of living and uh, you know issues are, are really here to stay um, you know, and we know that cost is, is is both a barrier and an opportunity for you know for, for, for companies to sort of connect with consumers um, when it comes to some of those um, sort of sustainability issues. Um, but also, kind of, I think we'll see a lot more scrutiny um, continuing over green claims, um, and we know that there's going to be um, particularly uh, sort of a, a sort of a brighter regulatory spotlight when it comes to environmental claims and the use of some claims like biodegradable, compostable, um, and also sector specific. Specific invest investigations um, that have been launched, and food and drink will be will be one of those. So, you know, I think from our point our point of view, it's you know very much helping clients and and, and you know sort of companies sort of navigate through that, um, but also really helping to kind of bring more of the the, the sort of the positive um, you know side of this. So um, with COP28 this year, um, you know how can companies really engage in that in that um, in that process? How can they use their platforms to you know kind of bring a, a bring you know the youth voice? 
voice to the table, for example. There's lots of opportunities, I think, for companies to be more involved um, in those conversations, but in a way that, you know, kind of really helps to sort of push the agenda on. Um, so, yeah, lo lots of things, I think, coming up in, in, in 2023. Um, I'll also be joining a panel at the International Food and Drink event in March, um, which, again, looks at consumer expectations um, when it comes to sustainability and how businesses can help to bridge the gap. Um, so, yes, lots of exciting things to come in 2023. Yes, definitely, I agree. And uh, yeah, we'll be communicating that shortly so uh, uh, people can uh, register to the event. And uh, yeah, we'll keep an eye on open on uh, other events uh, upcoming uh, in this year. But um, just last question, how, how can our members engage with you? What is the best way to contact yourselves? So you can find us um, at our website, instinctive.com. Um, we can share our emails um, in the podcast notes. So very, very happy to, um, um, to, to, to hear from any of your listeners over email if you want to discuss any of the themes that we've talked about on the podcast um, or, of course, on LinkedIn. Um, and, yeah, happy to, um, to have a chat and, and grab a coffee and talk about sort of ESG, public policy when it comes to food and drink. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Always happy to meet more people and yeah, keep these conversations going and, and share sort of our best lessons learned, I think, for industry, from government, for, it's all for us to keep these dynamic conversations going, find the best solution that works for, for everyone going forward. So absolutely get in touch. Um, we're sort of based in central London, so very happy to meet.